0: From the campus of the University of Pennsylvania Wharton School, this is Wharton Moneyball on Business Radio.
1: Welcome. Welcome to Wharton Moneyball. Welcome to a full hour of sports analytics here on SiriusXM. This is Cade Massey hosting with the whole crew, all three co-hosts, colleagues, and collaborators, Eric Bradlow, Shane Jensen, Audie Weiner. Some combination of us are here. Almost every week of the year, we're probably pushing 49, something like that, weeks of the year, and we're rolling up, y'all, y'all, we haven't talked about this in a while, we're rolling up on our 10-year anniversary, about a, about a month away, five weeks away from a 10-year anniversary. On this show, we're going to do our usual open lines, if you will, in the first half, a short first half, because we have a longish conversation with Ben, Walt, ben, ben Baldwin, football analyst, commentator, writer, Ben Baldwin, friend of the show. Always has interesting things to say coming, especially on the heels of the NFC and AFC championship games. Guys, um, we'll save most of the NFL talk for our conversations with Ben, but any quick reactions coming out of the Ravens loss and the Lions loss? How about that way of framing it?
0: Well, I'll just talk just 10 seconds about the um, Lions game since now I have a As soon-to-be daughter-in-law. My son's fiancé's parents are from Michigan, and so I, I just went to a Lions game this year for the first time, spent time at Michigan as well. Um, I've never thought more about statistical models during the game, specifically the work that uh, Audie's done with Ryan Brill than I was during that game. Like, I know they're saying they should go for it. They're putting go for it up on the screen. But what's the uncertainty associated with this? Like, none of those decisions seemed obviously so good or obviously so bad. I may have made a different choice, but it would have been stupid momentum arguments having nothing to do with what the data actually said. So while I was watching the game, I was literally wishing they had used the Weiner-Brill or Brill-Weiner algorithm and showed us, this is a go, but the uncertainty is high.
2: I guess you'll just have to listen to the second half of the show where we discuss it. <laughs>
1: <laughs> well, to put a real quick gloss on that, you you can have uh, a data that say fifty two percent chance it's better to go left than right based on a little bit of data, or fifty two percent chance based on a lot of data, and that's the difference that Eric is looking for. Let's acknowledge when it's not much data there making the suggestion versus when we are sure that the edge is fifty two. At
0: least they said during the game that the only thing that look. Uh, Dan Campbell went for more than anybody else. It's still not a massive sample size, but went for more than anybody else. They made it on 75% of fourth and two, fourth and threes. So I'm sure, and Adi can talk about this later in the show or whatever, post tweet tweet about this as at W Moneyball. If you put that 0.75 into his model, as opposed to maybe the marginal probability, then it probably would have said go. And that's the beauty in my mind of the approach Is that if you have a different belief in probability, because either you're seeing something on the field or your empirical average is different than the rest of them, put that number in and see what it
2: says. Actually, what's interesting is to change that conversion probability and see whether it still changes the uncertainty. It obviously does to a degree, but it changes the win probability, but it might not change the uncertainty that much.
1: So, We're going to talk a lot more about these models uh, with Brian when we get to it. Any thoughts on the Super Bowl matchup? We have Chiefs-Niners. This is a rematch of the pandemic 2020 Super Bowl. Um, excited about this? Not excited about this? Do you have a strong lean one way or the other? We talked about it again with Baldwin some, but I didn't get really kind of the group's consensus on how you feel about the Super Bowl.
3: I'm not that excited about it, and I think the Chiefs will win because I'm convinced we can't have nice things in 2024. But, I mean... <laughs> I don't know if I have anything particularly insightful beyond that. I think
0: also, I think at some point, not that he doesn't get his due already, but, you know, Andy Reid is clearly moving up the great pantheon of coaches. This is his, I think, fifth Super Bowl. It has to be, right? Because he went to one with the Eagles and then this is fourth with the Chiefs. And he wins three. I don't, I mean, obviously Belichick's got six um I don't know I think Joe
3: Gibbs won did he win like three with three different quarterbacks or something like that That could be he might have
0: three and of course you know uh Chuck Noll won a few he probably won four you know yeah, Bill he, Walsh Bill Walsh did. wasn't all of the teams I think he won three mm. um but you know I think that's it I think very quickly we're getting to the threes being the Chuck Noll's Bill Walsh's uh Bill Belichick's of the world so Andy Reid's moving up quickly and, you know, assuming he stays, if I were him, I'd stay as long as Mahomes stays. If I were him, they could wheel me out there until I'm 80 and I'd keep, as long as Mahomes is still out there, he could end up, I'm not saying he's catching Belichick or anything like that, but he could end up winning four to five Super Bowls. Why not?
3: Yeah. I mean, I, I think the only thing that would keep him from kind of, I mean, other than Mahomes' health is his own. I, I think Andy, Andy Reid's a lot older now than Belichick when he first oh, kind of paired up with Brady. And
0: 65.
3: And so I think you know, I mean, how long you know it, it's coaches do continue on in their seventies, and I I'm with you. I, why? If I'm Andy Reid, keep it going. But uh, you could understand why he probably eventually he's going to be stepping away before Mahomes does. I think.
1: One of the things that jumps out to me is the Niners. Um, maybe maybe because we were imprinted pretty early in life, three of us anyway, with Niners making the Super Bowl. But they they it feels like they've been in there more than they have. The Patriots have been in there eleven times. That's the most I think this is updated through 2023 um Steelers Cowboys Broncos at eight look at the Broncos sneaking in there guys Steelers Cowboys Broncos at eight this will take know, Niners that way
0: went to five I mean he was two and three and then Manning went to at least one with the Broncos who were at six and there's probably a couple others back there you know back there with Manning won one and lost one with the Broncos okay so now we're at seven
1: so, um, the Niners will get to eight with this game, but I think something distinct about the night, I think I'm speculating, but we could do this analysis. They've, they've spread their eight out over a pretty wide range of time. We're going to talk in the second half of the show about fandom and what it's like to have a team making the Super Bowl or not. I think the Niners have been a pretty good bet, you know, over most generations that you're going to get a Super Bowl or two over a, a window. And, I'm not saying I like this, but I'm saying it is a feature. No, and I, or I, I think, it, and I
3: hate, to, I hate to throw anything positive in their direction, but the uh, New York Giants, I think, they, haven't they won a Super Bowl in each of the last, like, three oh, or no, four decades or something like that? I think they're the only team to actually accomplish sort of that that particular sort of space out tax, but they've also had a lot of really, te- you know, they've been yeah. kind of a, certainly over the last decade or so, an example of highs, high, lows, low.
1: Yeah. Yeah. Right. All right. Uh, one other note that, that was announced today that the chargers, you know, the chargers have one of the supposedly one of the best quarterbacks in the league. They recently acquired a successful coach at both NFL and NCAA levels and Jim Harbaugh. And then, then today they announced that they hired Joe Hortiz from the Ravens, Joe has been the personnel director there for the last few years since DaCosta became general manager. He's been part of that personnel system for 26 years. And so the Chargers have started to put together a bunch of interesting pieces and it's going to be super interesting to see what comes of it. They've been so um, underperforming for so long. Ortiz might be the last p- critical piece there. It'll be interesting to see if he gets anybody else out of that building. Um, okay, guys, let's talk about a few other. We, we want to get to baseball hall of fame. In fact, in the, let's see how much time y'all want to spend on that, because we're going to be short this first half. We should just go straight there. Let's do one thing. Eric, your boy didn't make it through the finals in Australia. The all-timer got knocked out in the end. What's your analysis of what happened? there? And we have a new guy on the scene, this, this 22-year-old who takes, takes him out.
0: Yeah, I mean, Yannick Sinner beat him. Um, he beat him in four, and it's actually pretty easy sets. Um, he could have easily won in three. He had a horrible forehand into the net on first match point. It could have been a straight set win, um, he came, but he beat him in the other sets, 6-1, 6-2, 6-3. Um, he was much better, and this is the first time, really, and I'll just say one quick thing. This is the first time, really, and, and Djokovic admitted it after the match. He, he said, this is the worst I've played in a Grand Slam match. I did not expect this. He was basically describing what I said happens to older players, this two-hump distribution. He admitted, I had no A game. It was not coming. This was the worst I've played. And he said, I'm confident I'll win more majors. But I think he also was confident in saying there's more uncertainty in his game. The bad Djokovic could show up. and mm-hmm. But Sinner looked great. Look, the reality is um, I'm excited now because... There's Alcaraz, there's Sinner, we obviously, there's Zverev, there's Medvedev, there's five, six men's players who can win a lot of different tournaments now. And I think Djokovic is clearly, it's still the lead dog, but he can be beaten on any given day and there's probably three or four players now that can do it. It was exciting. It was an exciting tournament and Sinner came down. By the way, Medvedev, I didn't know this. He's the first player ever to lose two majors up two sets to zero. Oh, no one two no, twice. He's twice. Yeah. He's done it twice. He'd done it twice at the Australian, once to Nadal and now once to Sinner. I i did not know that stat. It'sn't he, w- yeah. he down two sets
3: to none in the semi too against or whatever. He came back from two sets down,
0: I that think, in correct. this
3: particular tournament. Oh, yeah,
0: yeah. He's right. But I'm saying no one in the finals of a major, except for he's lost two finals up two sets to zero. And he's done it twice now. And look, on the women's side, the thing that's exciting quickly is Sabalenka was great. And the women's side is always wide open. I mean, there's five or six women, Coco Gauff, Sabalenka, Rabakina, of course, the number one major player in the world, Iga Swantek. I mean, there's five – I've never been more excited about tennis. I think there's five or six players on both sides that you could take a fair – each have more than 10% probability to win a major. It's a great time to be a tennis fan. All
1: right, except for the fact that it's tennis desert for the next few months uh, until the French Open. That is true. We'll we'll, we'll we'll circle back to it. All right, fellas, right as we wrapped up our show's taping last week, the Hall of Fame votes – I mean, like, within minutes, the Hall of Fame votes come through. What, and I think there was a collective huh, – uh huh. About the whole thing, how do, how do y'all feel, and why do you hate Joe Mauer so much?
3: I love Joe Mauer. I was actually, I I, I feel like if we'd had this show a couple of years ago, I would have probably been the one most stridently arguing for him to go to the Hall of Fame. Um, I was, I was surprised it was first ballot though. I thought he, I thought he was a person um, that would have to kind of build momentum in a way. I think Chase Utley will or somebody like that, somebody kind of you know on the margins. But I mean, it just goes to show. I think catchers are. I think, I mean, maybe you has something to say about that are a particularly unpredictable, I think, you know, kind of hall, hall of Fame breed because they're such a, you know, a, a, a position that is not necessarily as, you know, kind of hitting cumulative totals forward for the Hall of Fame as other positions.
1: Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Adi, you're muted.
2: Uh, okay, happy to hop in and talk about it. Um, the problem with catchers, of course, is that they tend to have short careers without much um uh, offensive numbers, except for the ones that do. And there's a bunch who really have been fantastic. And I'm not sure it's that easy to argue that Maurer's in that group. He had a short, shortish career as a catcher, a little, a little longer as a first baseman or DH, or whatever he was doing up there. Um, he, just not overwhelming. So the real issue is first ballot. I mean, thinking about Eric's three tiers in the Hall of Fame, we tend to think of first ballot Hall of Fame as first or second tiers only, not third tier, and Maurer is deep third tier, and he got in first ballot. Um, <laughs> okay, hold on so real.
1: What percentage of guys that get in, get in on the first ballot?
2: Um, That's a good question. I wish I knew the answer, but I would say it's probably about a third, I would say. What do you think? Third? Okay. Half? At most.
0: At most. Probably less.
3: And at- I, I think the, long, the lack of longevity in Maurer's career, I think, is pro- partly, I think, mitigating people's mind by the fact that he was a catcher. You know, something like, you you know, uh, I I think if you're not going to be kind of that like perennial MVP candidate, you have to kind of have that longevity. Like Beltre, I feel like is almost the opposite of the spectrum where you have a very long career. Yeah. Um he, he he I don't think Beltre was ever MVP, but he accumulated like over 3000 hits, which is obviously going to that's just going to get you there. My God,
2: And he was an all star third baseman and a tremendous uh, fielder for for all his entire career. And that's that's in a position where it matters at least somewhat. It's not a middle position, but it matters a lot. He put up great numbers for 20 years. He's clearly a second tier Hall of Famer, deserved of a first ballot. I don't think that there was any ambiguity about that. Um, the, the big one was Todd Helton, I think. Was he was he in his last year or was he his ninth year? I forget. It was, was, it was, was pretty close. The, to
3: I, I, I think you're pretty right. He, he was, it's was one of his final couple years.
2: And the thing about Helton is, is if you look at his actual numbers, they look incredible. All right. So here is almost like a statistical issue, right? Because he played. In, there are two things about Helton's incredible numbers is he was in the heart of the inflated batting era, right? That's the that steroid era, whatever you want to call it, the shitty pitching, steroid steroid era, whatever you want to, how
1: do you describe that? What years do you define that era to be, by the way?
2: It's late 90s early aughts. I mean that's the that was his peak of his career. my that's that's when that's the the big Yeah, time. I mean when 90s, the Bash
3: Brothers were like I, yeah, so mid 90s to mid 2000s.
2: Mid 90s to mid 2000s. That's when things were really off the charts. And then the, I think A-Rod was hitter, maybe
3: using a little bit into the late 2000s, but Yeah. yeah,
2: yeah. But the other issue is he's in Colorado and that, and Colorado yeah. is just like it's light air. It's unbelievable There's hitting to, to, to compensate for the light air, they make a giant ballpark, which means that that all kinds of batting ev- um, events just multiply there, and we've had to try to deal with that. But nevertheless, the man is an extraordinary hitter, and he did it for years and years right. and I, years.
0: I'm just I'm looking at the list here. They've polluted the first ballot Hall of Famers. So let me list you some other first ballot Hall of Famers: Chipper Jones. Oh, I don't know. Roy Halliday. Yeah. Roy Halliday. Roy ha- I don't know. No, yeah. no, I don't know. I mean, now we've got Joe Mauer in there. I don't know. I mean, I'm just saying there are some others. Willie Stargell was a great player, but I don't know if he's a first ballot Hall of Famer. You know, there's a bunch of guys. Who, but let me just say prior to 2000, it's literally the who's who of like literally for 26 years between the original class and 1962. There were no first ballot Hall of Famers, by the way. That's right. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Yeah, so, I mean, it used to mean a lot, but I don't know. They've added some. Anyway, I'm not happy with Mauer being first ballot. He's definitely not first tier. And I agree with Shane. I thought he would be somebody that would take time to get in there. And I would say Todd Helton, I guess, is a Hall of Famer, but not that exciting. But Beltray, I mean, you got to feel good for that guy. I mean, he's got. Yeah, I mean, mean,
3: Beltray and Helton basically, like, if 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 they were the representatives, if they were the kind of canonical, it would be the the Hall of the consistently excellent, you know, or something like that. Like, I mean, they put together long careers of just consistent excellence and that is worthy of acknowledgement in our hall of fame they're not when they see fame you're you're not that's not gonna you know you you'd obviously you'd like to sort of see like postseason heroics or like you know some some other kind of thing or or somebody who like was kind of singularly excellent in their time like a lot of mvps like pool holes or somebody like that
1: it's a it's a good point it's an interesting point and y'all often talking about longevity versus peak and you're really talking about more emphasizing the first right. but you're you're arguing that they, they deserve representation even if it's not a splashy I'm curious why it's so important that um a guy who makes it eventually but what why would someone change their vote between the first ballot and the fifth year of the guy being on the ballot I mean what's the logic there
2: you're the Is human it,
1: psychologist man well, i
3: think like,
2: it' was a I, there's there's a couple things here. There's there's definitely the idea that first ballot is a deserving thing and that you want to take that into consideration. It's almost like a merit. The other issue is you, ha- you have to look who else is on the ballot. So you have to husband your votes to think about. You remember, you get only 10 shots and uh, you have to think about who's last. So Helton was close to his last year. Sheffield was his last year. Yeah. Um, he didn't make it. Um, he'll be looking for veterans to bring him in. I'm not sure if Sheffield. Yeah, I know. Are that I, I, different? And it's
3: going to like, you know, players coming upcoming in the next couple of years, I think, are part of the calculus of writers, too. Because, again, they don't want to I think most writers are like, I only want to on average be voting for like three people a year or something like that. So they're kind of I I think there's amount of changing strategy. I'm with UK.
0: Ten votes is plenty of votes. And these people's records aren't changing. I wouldn't be changing my vote at all. Except for except for as Adi said, there's a step function for me to vote for someone on the first ballot. They better be okay.
1: So there is direct. That's That's the only ballot.
0: change I would but, make for me. But
1: I like what Shane's saying. Like if you if you if you see a big chunk of people coming down the pipeline, you might want to get a guy that eventually will get there out of the way. So let's get Maurer out of the way because you expect the next few <laughs> years to <laughs> be rich.
3: Yeah, like next year. Next year, Ichiro comes in. I think Cece and a couple other ones that probably will not be first ballot. They probably won't last
2: long. Each row on will. the ballot, but Ichiro's <laughs> yeah. first ballot no doubt
1: (laughs) all right gentlemen Um, Eric can report from Cooperstown this summer he can maybe (laughs) go talk to our buddy Maurer and shake his hand and give him a big smooch for uh, All right, Um, all right guys that's been the first half of Wharton Moneyball we still have a half to go come back and join us after the break
0: you're listening to Wharton Moneyball on business radio
1: welcome back welcome back to Wharton Moneyball Welcome back to the second half hour of this week's show. As frequent listeners know, this is our usual guest segment, and we are delighted to have back on the show joining all of us. We've still got all the hosts in here, Adi from Parts Unknown dialed in, Eric from his office, Shane from his home office, and this is Cade Massey. Joining us is Ben Baldwin. Ben is a longtime friend of the show. It's been a little bit since we've talked to him. Our schedules have not coordinated. We like talking to Ben regularly. Those of you who are in the football analytics world know Ben's work. You can find him on Twitter at at Ben B. Baldwin, or perhaps more locally known as Computer Cowboy. Ben B. Baldwin tweets under the handle Computer Cowboy. He is an economist by training He has been a contributor to outlets such as The Athletic over the years. His full-time job is in another industry, but he clearly has a passion and a talent for football analytics. Ben, it's been too long. Good to see you. Thanks for having me, and I I really lucked out with the schedule
4: with not only all four of you, but talking about football the week after the conference championship week. So I'm very uh, happy to be here with you guys.
1: Well, thank you, Ben. Um, You know, it is a fun time of here to talk football. And the football really delivered. Both college and pro is really delivered this year so far. And not only in football entertainment, but, but in analytics controversy. So uh, to some extent, we might all be kind of over it, but we can't quite be over it because we have Ben Baldwin on here. We have Audie Weiner of the Brill Weiner, whatever y'all call it, framework <laughs> model, the Brill Weiner solution. <laughs> The Brill Weiner Solution. Get Frederick Forsyth to write a book, The Brill Weiner Solution.
2: Brill Weiner, I love it. Thank you.
1: (laughs) We're talking, of course, about in-game decision-making. Dan Campbell and the Lions had a few that didn't go their way, which has spawned all kinds of controversy. Um, Great football this weekend, some tragically sad football for some of us, but great football nonetheless. Ben, what were your takeaways from Sunday's matches?
4: Yeah, we definitely do need to mention, since since it is Tuesday, maybe Wednesday, by the time people are listening to this, people are still talking about the fourth downs by the Lions um, in their game against the 49ers. They had two opportunities to kick field goals that were 40-something yards long. It was, I think, fourth and two or fourth and three on both of them. They went for it twice, they failed twice, and they ended up losing by three points. So, of course, all the discussion afterwards is about... Oh, if they had just kicked these two field goals, which are guaranteed points, they would have had six more points and they would have won the game. And I think there's some interesting parts of this. One is that, at least according to the models I've seen, and there's there's NGS models, ESPN models, I have my own model, none of them were really strong one way or the other. So it's not like you see... Analytics people banging the table that like this was and this is the whole point of Audie's paper right that this is not an obvious decision. I don't think I've seen any analytics person saying this is an obvious decision. They had to go for it and they they were right to go for it. And here it, it seems like it was more a case of this is the identity that Dan Campbell wants to have for his team. This is how they've played all year. This they've historically converted at a very high rate in these situations. And on the first play, the, the play worked. They had a pass that bounced off the receiver's hands. And it, that, that's part of going for it and not converting is sometimes these things happen. But it it's hard to look at it and say they had no chance of converting either of these plays. And a lot of the critics of quote-unquote analytics or whatever say coaches have such a better idea of their conversion rates and what goes into these and they should listen to the flow of the game and everything. And that's that's exactly what Dan Campbell is doing. So it seems weird to say... We the model the modelers don't know about all this stuff, so we should defer to coaches. And then when coaches are using these factors to make decisions to be more aggressive, then criticize them for it afterwards. So I, I think that to me is the frustrating part of the conversation that has happened since then.
1: That's interesting. So the, you're you're saying that there's this difficult middle ground to to hold because the critics of models will sometimes say you're, you're not considering you know, the wind or whatever. There's, that's a, a joke between a few of us. Um, but on the other hand, you do get modelers sometimes act as if their, you know, solution is the end of all conversation. And all you need to know is what comes out of the model. So the mistake is made in both directions. One of the things that's cool about the paper you referred to, the Brill Weiner paper, this is something Audi did with a PhD student at Wharton named Ryan Brill, who's fantastic. And it got, it's gotten a lot of love in the last few months since this thing has come out. We'll turn to Adi, but let me just say that what I think is most beautiful about this paper is that it acknowledges what the model doesn't know. It's like it's kind of puts a premium on uncertainty. But the other thing it does, interestingly, and unlike any other models I've seen explicitly, is that it says, "Look, if you think you've got a better than average kicker or a worse than average rush uh, r- defense, then you know tweak the parameters of the model and see what difference it makes." And they bake that in explicitly. And and they've even got a little interface that you can work with to a shiny app that you can play with these things. So it's it's it seems like a real advance. But let's just turn to the co-author himself. Odd. What does y'all got to say, Dan, Dan Campbell?
2: Man, on that t- thing. T- totally a lot to say. Um, you're right that the the model itself is adaptable. You can actually change the inputs. So. The things you don't change are the estimate of of team strength, the yard line, the yards to go, the score, the time, those things aren't changeable. But you can put your probability of of conversion in there, your field goal probability you can put in there as well. Um, But what's really much more important than just changing those numbers is we we are very humble about how much the data can really tell us about what the right answer is. So even when you fix the parameters, we still... have to accept that the data isn't rich enough to give us a good answer. It might lean one way or the other, and that's okay. Models do lean one direction, but you also want to give a sense of how uncertain it is. And so let's just talk about the two decisions, Ben, that you talked about here. The first one, which was um, the lines were up 24 to 1. They were fourth and two at at the San Francisco 28. The advantage to going for it was about 2%. He had about a given how far ahead they were, they were about seventy nine percent chance of actually about eighty percent chance of winning and compared to seventy eight percent chance of winning if they had gone kick the, the field goal. In other words, they were pretty pretty good at, at that point, as you might have guessed. But the key number that we came up with is that we're only sixty percent certain that that's the right answer. In other words, if we had gotten another fifteen historical years of data that we ran on, where everything was the same, all the matches were the same, all the players were the same, and just the different randomness component of football was different. We might have gotten a different answer in forty percent of those of those, you know, pseudo iterations, and and that basically is a lesson to the the coach, which is we don't know. And you're, you should go and you should make your decision based on whatever you think is the best attempt. If you have a good conversion play, if you think your, your field goal kicker is weak or you feel, feel they're strong, whatever it is, this is an on the field decision. It should not even remotely be, be something that we should be deciding analytically. And that's the big innovation of the Brill Weiner method, um, among those other things. I mean, we I think we have, I will say that I think we have a really good statistical way of doing that as a, as a, as a, as a, as a methodologist, I want to, don't want to underwrite, you know, underplay that, but it's really the lesson. And I'll just take the, the there's two, the, the second one was about the same. This was up 14, fourth and two on, that was the first one. The, the second one was, um no, the second one was also fourth and two. Um, and, fourth and three, maybe. Uh, I have fourth and two, and the next one was uh um yeah, so fourth and three. And then the last one, this is fourth and three. Um, this is uh this was when they were down 24-27. This one actually, our model is is overwhelmingly, not unbelievably, but you know, almost 90% um certain that going for it is the right decision. I don't know what what your model said. We we really like going for it, um, which would it would take a lot on the field to change your mind. Not impossible, but we think that's a good idea, mostly because. You know, you got to win this game, and they're going to get the ball back, and you don't want them. You were here, yeah. So I think, and that, over time's a coin flip anyway. Even if you do tie it, etc. Right, and exactly. also
0: you have to you have to notice that they've scored on. I don't know if it was four or five straight drives. What makes you believe you can stop them from getting a field goal? Not even a touchdown. If you go up right. four points, that's a totally different situation.
2: So the first one was an absolute toss up. The second one was overwhelmingly go, and they did that, and they didn't make it. But you know, whatever.
1: So guys, I'm I'm glad we aired the models out some, and it's good that we you know go ahead and articulate our position. And I love that we can now say this is our position, and this is the degree of confidence in that position. That's a real advance. Um, But this debate just makes me feel like human nature is such that we're always going to over criticize these mistakes when they don't when these mistakes these decisions when they turn out poorly. And I would feel like it's just like oh my god, we're just And one of the nice things that's happened on the internet in the last couple of days is that people have listed all the occasions where a team went for it on fourth and either made it or they didn't get it, but they won the game anyway. And these fourth down decisions don't get any attention. And it begun to remind me of a a favorite recent paper of mine in psychology. I feel like it just hasn't quite gotten the attention that it deserves. There's a Tom, Tom Gillivich is a famous psychologist at Cornell and he had a paper in 2016 called, the headwinds tailwinds asymmetry and availability bias and assessments of barriers and blessings. His, his, they do, he, he does this with a student of his whose name's shy David. I Um, he and David, I run a a number of studies that show that document, kind of rigorously this fundamental human tendency to take for granted when the wind is at your back and disproportionately focus on the wind when it's in your face, you notice the barriers when they're there. You don't notice the barriers who that could have been there that aren't in your way. And this feels like a real nice demonstration of that. Shane.
3: Well, I just kind of want to point out that, I mean, I, I think especially with outcomes like this, where it really was, you know, these are kind of like toss up plays as far as like, you know, what, what, the, what the kind of analytics would would, would say mostly. Um, I, I think if I if I was kind of evaluating Dan Campbell as a coach, if he was, you know, my, my team's coach all you can really do is kind of be consistent within your process. And I mean, again, there might be context specific, you know, like is kicker struggling or something like that, some kind of aspect where you wouldn't want to kind of, but, but I, I think there is something to kind of going with what got you there as both a team philosophy and just as kind of a rational, you know, kind of a rational way of dealing with uncertainty anyway.
1: Well, does that mean we, I mean, I, that's interesting, Shane. Um, I mean, he's always one of
3: these, like, like, I mean, I think Dan Campbell this game versus like Doug Peterson in the Super Bowl a few years ago, you know, when you're an underdog, you're especially sort of, you know, Dan Campbell always is taking these kinds of chances. And, yeah, we, we have the bias that the outcomes in this particular case didn't work out, just like we have the outcome bias that those chances that Doug Peterson took in the Super Bowl didn't work out. But I just think, you know, I, I mean, again, when there's so much uncertainty, the most you can have is kind of consistency in your process.
1: You know, it, it does remind me of the conversations we had with the high school coach from Little Rock, who was so famous for always going forward on fourth down. We had him on the show a number of years ago, and one of his rationales was that you just built the culture and the expectation, and you, you learned to deal with it when it didn't go your way, and it's just part of the way you operated. That was explicitly the way the way he thought about it. Um, ben, there were other takeaways from the weekend and from the season, and you're you're someone who we always are interested in. Like, what are you thinking about? You're always trying to push the push the ball ahead and doing interesting analysis. What else are you thinking about around the NFL these days?
4: Yeah. So one is that the de- the the playoffs have made me wonder the extent to which we have any idea of how good defenses are or how good a defense will play in the playoffs, and uh, I, of course, this is a tiny sample, and we're going to be cherry picking games because there's 13 playoff games every year, and it, it, these are just tiny samples. But if you look at the best defenses during the year, th- these were by EPA per play. These were Browns, Ravens, Jets, Cowboys, Saints. Three of them made the playoffs, and only one of them, the Ravens, even won a playoff game. And if you look at teams like the Browns, they had an incredible defense during the regular season. You could find stats where they were like historically good at. Preventing opponents from picking up first downs, and in their first playoff game, they have to play in a dome against a team with a star rookie quarterback, and they the defense just did not translate. And it's not that defense doesn't matter; it's just that it's so hard to predict going forward, and maybe especially so in the playoffs when you're going to be playing on average all these teams that have good offenses, and it's probably or possibly more realistic to just think that the best quarterbacks are going to be the ones that are winning going forward.
3: I don't know to the extent that you've dug into kind of aspects, whether you could kind of break it down further and say like, well, maybe secondaries are more consistent or like, you know, like line, line play is more consistent. I, again, I I only say, cause the the chiefs trigger me in their kind of current dynastic run of reminding me so much of those, you know, Patriots teams where they have a shutdown secondary and, you know, like, a great QB tight end, but there's a lot of similarities, but really on the defensive side, it's, it's shut down secondary. Um, and, you know, ability to generate pressure. I don't know if those aspects are
4: more consistent. So I, I think this does get to a natural question is whether this has changed over time. So I think it's possible that all the rule changes that have happened since those Patriots teams have made it really hard to sustain really good defense going forward.
1: Real quickly. I'm just, is there a, there a term for a positive version of trigger? Or is it only – I mean, Shane just used trigger in a way that doesn't seem – it seems exactly wrong for a Patriots fan. It's like remind of the glory is, is whatever the term is for that. Anyway, just an aside. Adi, I'm sorry to be in your way. Adi.
2: No problem. Um, I I want to just sort of push back on the statement, it's not that defenses matter, it's just that they don't matter. I mean, how can I how can I square this? I mean, if you can't predict them, if they don't seem to last from one game to the next – in what way do they matter? I mean, I know they matter. I mean, I obviously you, you got to pay attention to them and train them, but really, I mean, if, if I'm trying to decide who's going to win and who's the better team, is it really, does it matter?
4: <laughs> yeah, that, so this is a good point. I think at least in my head, the distinction I was making was a statement about predictive going forward where, the, yeah, the mattering is very small versus being descriptive about what happened in the past, where if we look back, Yes, the defenses that made plays are the ones whose teams ended up winning, but I think it's not necessarily the case that we can predict which defenses those are going to be going forward. Yeah, I was just
0: wondering, you know, um, what I was impressed by, and maybe this does remind me in some ways of Brady and the Pats in some of the Super Bowls, was I think Patrick Mahomes realized this isn't the uh, Chiefs team that's putting a 50 spot on the board. So he's probably thinking to himself, you know what? I don't turn the ball over here. I don't make any stupid plays. Our defense seems to be handling the the, uh, Ravens pretty well. You know what? We can play more conservative football. We don't have to go for large passes down the field. Matter of fact, I think the only large pass really I remember down the field was to Valdez Scanling to put away the game at the end. There were no long throws, other stuff like that. How do you think about that, Ben, in some sense, you know, as you're gaining evidence throughout the game that your game plan is working? Maybe Andy Reid says, look, we have plan A and plan B. Plan B, the
4: conservative one, seems to do okay in this case. It certainly felt that way after halftime that the Chiefs were, it did not feel the same way watching their offense as it did in the first half, and it it certainly felt like Maybe, yeah, maybe Mahomes was playing more conservatively. You have this multi-score lead, and you don't want to do anything to jeopardize that. And I think in some way they possibly got lucky that it didn't backfire, where they let the Ravens hang around so long, and the Ravens did have their chances. They had, they were about to score a touchdown, there was the fumble into the end zone, and then they drove down the field again, and the Chiefs came up with the interception in the end zone. So if if your defense is going to create two turnovers that end up being touchbacks. No, then, I mean, they, had enough, yeah. they had enough possessions to win the game. Yep. Yep. Um, and this is, I think oh, this is one
1: of the hardest thing for coaches to do. It struck me just simply watching that game, that this challenge, it's a universal challenge for coaches. When, how quickly do you move from a strategy that's not working? And we criticize coaches all the time for in both directions. Which just shows how hard it is. But even just in the Ravens game on the Baltimore side, and I'm I'm not sophisticated enough to know whether this was right or not. But they certainly they didn't they rushed four against Mahomes the entire first half because that's the book on Mahomes, and he just shredded them. And so then they started bringing people in the second half. And you ask, okay, did Mike McDonald wait too long to shift to his, shift his strategy and then flip it around on the offensive side? They came in with a terrific rushing offense, and then really quickly moved away from that to a shocking degree. And so, did the, and so it's like, on the defensive side, do they stay too long? On the offensive side, do they move too quick? But are we, just as lay people, subject to this headwinds, tailwinds thing, just going to criticize if it doesn't work out, and we take it for granted if it does? But it does strike me as a generally a, a – y'all just praised Reed for it. read adapted perfectly. Right. Okay, well, maybe that's one of the real talents of coaching in-game is knowing when to shift and knowing when to stay. Shane.
3: Yeah. I mean, I think it is. And I think that's, you know, what, again, what what I think the Pats had going for them all those years, but I do think it's sort of like, it's, it's how, what's extra hard to evaluate this. Like does defense when you know, is defense important in the playoffs is in this particular kind of, you know, in, in, in these two games, it really felt like, you know, the teams did kind of go away from what got them there. The Ravens got went away from their kind of running first sort of offense. Um, and the lions kind of went away from that as well as when, when, when they had the lead. And so, and sort of like if you were to look at sort of, you know, what season level stats are predictive of playoff success, you're kind of making an assumption that they're going to actually act and, and scheme in the playoffs like they did in the regular season. And mm-hmm. I guess that's an, another kind of complicated part of the analysis.
1: Mm-hmm, mm-hmm,
3: mm-hmm. All right. I do think it was
4: surprising. I was just looking at this before joining the on 44 plays, first and second down for the Ravens. They had 38 called dropbacks and six fresh attempts, which... I'm not in those meetings I have no idea why they're doing this and some some part of this is game script where they were trailing my multiple score through a lot of the game but it is a very large deviation from how the Ravens had played right. Right.
3: Yeah. I mean, this is, uh, this is not very, it's going to be not a very ethical question, but do you think coaches like kind of out, like when you're facing a dominant, like kind of dynastic team, do coaches just like outthink themselves in, in response to that? I kind of, you know, I kind of feel like why, you know, the, why would the Ravens do like do such a kind of scheme? Otherwise, other than some kind of fear of what specifically the chiefs are going to do to them.
4: Yeah. I could see how that could enter their mind. You're, you're playing Patrick Mahomes, the first two drives, the Chiefs marched on the field and scored touchdowns. So at that point, maybe you think you're going to need to score a lot of points to end up in the game. And in the second half, it, it's hard to know how much of the Chiefs not scoring was because they all down or because of the Ravens defensive adjustments. And I, I think those, those are hard questions to answer. But the, the Ravens didn't know ahead of time, I guess, that they would successfully be able to do that.
1: Well, let's just note also that some of those, again, like a great, great call on the number of dropback calls. But also the passes thrown. There, a lot of it was super vertical passes, like time yep. after time. It was kind of interesting. Okay, fine. Uh, different topic, but same with the Ravens. I'm curious what y'all think. What is the what is the optimal level of competitiveness for fans? Um, and, and the idea, I you know, Ravens have been a little bit painful to pull for, even though there's a Super Bowl only you know 12 years ago. But all the same, they've been competitive enough to get your hopes up season after season. And it's been painful in kind of every time. And I have a, a dear friend, we have a colleague, a, a dear friend who um, suggested that his life is actually worse off since the Ravens came to town, despite two Super Bowls. And, you know, it could, you could argue, you know, Lions haven't even been in a Super Bowl. They haven't been good enough to worry about. If you live in Detroit, you got got friends, you follow the game. If you're not living there and you don't get the social benefits – how competitive does your team have to be to make it a net positive experience? So here's a couple of questions. So Chiefs off the charts right now. Um, Pats, my God, I mean, y'all can't complain for a long time, Shane, right? Like, but there is a question like, yeah, how I was, many I, decades?
3: I was say, I, I, as you're describing this, I'm, I, I was going to say they don't want my perspective on this at all. I'm no, we just, do. I'm we do back.
1: because the questions, what's the decay rate? So for example, here's a team I think is interesting. Are, are cowboy fans who've lived the last, it's like a 40-year-old cowboy fan. Is that a is that a net positive experience or net negative? Like they've got a lot of championships, but it's been a long time and it decays at some rate. So there's just this kind of an interesting psychological. We're all fans. I mean, you Yankees, I'm a you'll,
0: 56-year-old you'll, Yankee fan, and I'm not happy. We have what? buddy? <laughs> I mean, we have one title in the last 23 years. What could I cherry pick stat there? <laughs> what could I possibly be happy about? And if I was a cowboy fan, don't have it right? then not they last win the title in what ninety three?
1: Yeah, that sounds right. So how 30 can you years.
0: possibly be happy with no titles in thirty? Matter of fact, they haven't. When's the last time they even made the Super Bowl? Was it that same year? They haven't made
1: a They, they have made an, an NFC Championship game in decades.
0: All right, so um, no. How could that's not no?
1: But so I'm I'm a little surprised though that two Super Bowls by the Ravens and their what is it twenty you know twenty seven years of existence or whatever it is. Is not enough, but I think that might not be enough. I think it might not be positive. At least if you're not living in Baltimore, not enjoying the the, the social benefits. Baldwin, who who is your who are your allegiances? Who do you bleed for? Who can you bring your personal data from on this question?
4: So uh, I'm I'm from Seattle and a Seahawks fan, and the Ravens and Seahawks are actually in pretty similar boats because the the Ravens won the their Super Bowl in 2012, the Seahawks the year after, and then neither team has won since. And the Seahawks had a heartbreak the following year at the Ravens in, yeah. in 2019 and this year have probably felt like they had teams that should have been Super Bowl worthy. And I think those those two are probably worth it, where at least you've seen your, your team win a Super Bowl in recent memory. The fans I really feel bad for that you guys kind of covered last week are teams like the Bills, where... Like you have Josh Allen, you have a great team. You've been so close so many times, but you just happen to have Patrick Mahomes in your conference and just have not been able to get by him. So I think a team like that would probably make me question my like what I was getting out of this more than a team that has actually won recently, although with completely different players.
1: Ben, you just mentioned Mahomes. Can we do a little bit more analytics on him? If if you know we we can't observe everything that matters. Uh, we can't measure everything that matters. We can speculate. We can hypothesize. Over time, maybe measurements get better. What do you believe makes Mahomes such an exceptional quarterback? If if you believe he's such an exceptional quarterback, what would you like to measure? If we if we could magically measure anything you anything you you could come up with, what would that be? What do you think it is that separates Mahomes?
4: So I think there are some things that are measurable that really set him apart. One is. The extent to which he's able to create plays without taking sacks, which is kind of his superpower where most quarterbacks who scramble a lot also take high sack rates at the same time because they're trying to extend plays and they're taking this risk of the longer they extend the play, the more like the more likely they are to get sacked. But somehow Mahomes does this and just never gets sacked and is also very valuable scrambling in key situations and, and is also, through his legs, able to prevent the defenses from playing certain kind of coverages because they know that. Like, if, if they're in man-to-man, man, they're going to turn their backs, and then Mahomes is just going to kill them with his leg. So mm-hmm. I think those are the quantifiable things. Um, mm-hmm. And then there's also his his arm strength and everything that we can watch while viewing him. But, yeah, there there's also something about him that is unquantifiable that I if, if I were a defensive coordinator or a defensive player, I, I would just be so scared of having to game plan or or play against him.
1: Real quick, you, you, you mentioned the type of defense they play. I, the announcers on Sunday – Talked about his being him being one of the best the best at pulling defenders off out of their zone, like helping the receivers find space by moving defenders around when they're in zone. And you're saying so that's you know we presumably can quantify that now these days. But you're also saying, and I was thinking it real time because that is a known thing about running running quarterbacks is that man to man is dangerous against him because you you get your back to him. And so that's this neat combination where he's super dangerous as a runner. So you want to play zone, but then he's super effective at moving out of you, moving out of your zone. Super interesting. Adi.
2: So you talked about um, the superpower of being able to basically scramble about and not get sacked. And uh, you said it's quantifiable. So my question is, if it's quantifiable, have you quantified it? And how much of Mahomes sort of exceptionalism sort of is, I may basically assume this. Let's say we plugged in average at every other kind of component of quarterback um, attribute, and then we have this one superpower. Where does that get him? I mean, it seems mm-hmm. like an incredible superpower. I've watched enough uh, enough football to know that being able to avoid those big losses are just gigantically valuable. Um, how much? How much? How far do you get there? I guess I'm kind of asking.
4: I wish I had the answer off the top of my head, okay. but don't. But I, well, I think that is exactly the right yeah, question to be asking. I, but yeah, I, I think that. Like, scramble, effective scramble, plus never taking sacks. And I guess the other thing is, plus almost never throwing interceptions. Like, just avoiding negative plays generally buys you a lot in terms of sustaining drives because you're not making those, the, the sacks and interceptions that are going to be ending a lot of drives. If I, mm-hmm. I I'm thinking of a percentage I could put on this, and i I, I think I'd be horribly wrong if I said a number. So I'm, I'm yeah, trying to take the coward's way out here. About,
2: yeah. I mean, People are already talking about Mahomes as, as the GOAT. Sorry, Shane. Um, I know. He's just can't see, he's on, on the radio. You should uh, stop talking saying, to those Come people
3: on. If, those, if people are talking about that. Right, right. So you can just filter those let people let me, let me right out. Question.
2: Are there other you know, great quarterbacks who fall into this mode? My view is the great quarterbacks of the past were, you know, they had, their greatness was something completely different. No, am I wrong? How is this?
4: So I think the sack avoidance is definitely something shared by great quarterbacks where Tom Brady never took sacks, Peyton Manning never took sacks, and they they were well known for this. But they did not pair this with also being able to hurt you with their legs to the same extent. So I, I think that's the thing. Not not saying that that alone is making him the GOAT or not making him the GOAT, but I think that, that does set him apart from some of the other greats that we've seen in the past.
0: I have a question for you, Ben, but I'll I'll ask you, Ben, that I would love everyone to weigh in. I do this every week, so I might as well do it here again. So San Francisco's favored by one and a half. So let's say that makes them, I don't know, 53-47, maybe 55-40. Let's say 53-47, just for argument's sake, okay? Oh, I'm sorry. I forgot to tell you that Kansas City has been to six AFC Championship games. Patrick Mahomes is his fourth Super Bowl. Brock Purdy hasn't been to any Super Bowls. Oh, so how much does that move your probability? I do this every week because I'm interested to know, like now that I'm telling you it's Patrick Mahomes, I'm telling you it's his fourth Super Bowl. I'm telling you again, it's Patrick Mahomes. He's won two Super Bowls. How much is that worth? Or maybe you think the line has already absorbed that fact and San Francisco would be a lot higher. So how do you think about it? Personally, I don't think the line has absorbed that fact enough. I don't think, I I would put much more probability on
4: Kansas City. I don't see how Kansas City can be an underdog in this game, but I'd love your thoughts. The the market knows these things, but it is certainly fair to to ask whether it has baked them in enough. And I think handicapping Chiefs games in the playoffs is so hard because it seems like they have realized that the regular season just doesn't matter what they they play for is winning playoff games, winning Super Bowls, so if you make a model of team strength and you tune it on past results and then you look at how the Chiefs played in the regular season this year, it's going to say, oh, the Chiefs aren't a very good team. And therefore the 49ers are one of the best offenses we've ever seen. And the Chiefs should be underdogs, maybe even heavy underdogs. But we also know that we've seen this before from the Chiefs and somehow they and Patrick Mahomes always raise, or maybe not always, they often raise their level of play in the postseason. And I, I know Aaron um, who was on last week might disagree about that. And I I'm sorry, but I, I think I do disagree. I think, <laughs> I, I think we have enough evidence to say that, that, that we should not rely on how the chiefs have looked throughout the whole course of the season to the extent that we might with other teams where the, the chiefs have been to all these Super Bowls and this is what they're playing for. And I would trust them more than another team that, had played like they had throughout the course of the season. So I it, it, I would personally make the Chiefs' favorites, but I also don't know more than the people handicapping these games. So who knows?
1: <laughs> you know, uh, Eric, you're not buying the story that Purdy is uh, a pressure guy. He's good in the clutch. So I this mean, is the ultimate clutch. fine,
0: but I just want to say I can make a legitimate story. I did think this, especially after the Packers game. I thought the Packers were the better team. I thought that day, the Packers that should day. have won that game. Yeah. I think I'm going to say the Lions could have won that game. I mean, let's yeah. let's again say they didn't get the fourth and two. I agree with Ben. The ball was right into Johnson's hands. He catches that ball up 14. They continue that drive. It could be a totally different ball game. They fumble the ball, um, a 50-yard, 50 51-yard completion off the face mask. So it should have been intercepted, not a long – I'm just saying, you add up that five-minute stretch of the game – and you could say, except for that, the Lions could have won the game. So I've not seen anything from San Francisco to suggest to me that they're that great a team. But on the other hand, they did win the games, and that's impressive. And I was going to say, could I? Can I gone I, into the two other top teams in the AFC and beat them both on the road.
3: Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. No, you could pick five minutes of that Ravens game, and if I if I'm allowed to pick five minutes and change what happened in it. I could change the outcome of that game too.
0: This was a really bad five minutes.
1: That's a good, that's a good, that's a good test. Like how many minutes do you need if you could flip the outcomes to change the outcome of a game? I mean, I mean,
3: change the rule on like whether like a touchy, you know, change that weird like fumble into the end zone or whatever, change that play.
1: No, I I think it's a, I think it's a great test for how close a game was. Like what's the minimum change you can make to the game and get a different outcome? Um, in this case, we've we've got we've had a number lately that were pretty tight. All right, we're gonna have to go. We kept Ben longer than we thought we were. Ben, thanks for being with us, man. Great to talk to you.
4: Thanks for having me. Appreciate it.
1: Ben Baldwin, you can follow him on Twitter at Ben b Baldwin. Ben B. Baldwin, Computer Cowboy, long time friend of the show. Delighted to spend time with him. Thank you guys for listening from the whole crew here. The whole crew's been with us for the whole show. Audie Weiner, Shane Jensen, Eric Bradlow. Many thanks to Matty Dats, the boss man, for all that he does Dion Simpkins the associate boss man and our intern of sorts Kelly who's been vital behind the scenes this semester we're delighted to have her on the team thank you guys for listening come back and join us next time between now and then enjoy your sports